Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after criticism of how vaccine mandate protests were handled, Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly has finally resigned yesterday. What went wrong? Well, we'll get into that. Federal government took out a couple of steps to make travel much easier for Canadians and others coming to Canada. We'll give you all the details on that. And is Doug Ford recklessly undermining vaccine confidence with his change of tone during Tuesday's announcement for lifting restrictions? Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic, will join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday morning, of course, we got word that, uh, well, now former Chief of Police, uh, Peter Slowly was resigning from the Ottawa force. And uh, that did happen a couple of hours later. And uh, there's been immediate reaction to this. And a lot of concern about policing in Ottawa as that protest continues and uh, that occupation of the city continues. Uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino says that there is now an integrated command center that's been set up uh, with the RCMP and the Ontario Provincial Police, and they will share assumed command and control over law enforcement uh, related to these protests. That announcement came following the resignation, of course, of uh, Chief Slowly. Mendocino says uh, the chief's decision was a personal one. The federal government had no role in the decision and that there are obviously relationships that exist between Chief Slowly and the Ottawa Police Board that are beyond um, the remit of the federal government here. Our focus is to continue to give the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial uh, Police and the RCMP all of the resources that they need to restore public order in the streets of Ottawa. So <laughs> to the question who's in charge right now, clearly from what the minister is saying there, uh, it's a shared responsibility between RCMP and OPP uh, up there, which basically, I guess, they're telling Ottawa Police Services, just, uh, just back off here. You, you guys have messed this up. We'll take over from here. I want to bring Justin Ling into the conversation. Justin, of course, is a freelance investigative journalist. You uh, see his work in McLean's, in the Globe and Mail, and in The Guardian. Uh, and always a welcome guest on the program. Uh, Justin, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to have you back with us. Sure. Happy to be here. Uh, you're in Ottawa. You spent some time driving around yesterday. And before we get into some of the nuts and bolts about slowly and, and policing up there, uh, what did you see? Because, you know, I think a lot of us still have this picture in our minds of, of the occupation in downtown Ottawa, right on Wellington Street, right across from the Parliament buildings, right in front of the Parliament buildings, actually. But it's much more wide ranging geographically, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, first off, I have to correct something you said. I mean, it's wrong to say that uh, the OPP or the RCMP or the Ottawa Police Service are in charge because it was clear to me yesterday the occupiers are in charge of the city. I mean, they basically yeah. run the show. Um, police have had very little success in clearing them out of anywhere, of telling them not to do anything. So they basically run the city, at least the, the sort of central core around the parliamentary precinct. They have expanded their footprint on Wellington Street. They have a gym. They have a gym set up with some, some dumbbells and some dumbweights and whatnot. Um, they have a stage, a huge sound system. They have tents. They have a tent that on Monday and Tuesday nights you can go and do a uh, Nova Scotia kitchen party. They have um, a child care center. I've, I've heard. I have not seen that one. Um, they have uh, signs adorning all of the, the gates uh, surrounding Parliament. They basically turned um, downtown into their own sort of anti-vaccine dream board. Um, they have managed to sprawl out onto Kent Street and Metcalf Street going south for a number of blocks. Uh, they've taken over entire parking lots to turn them into tiny nightclubs. Uh, there's music going off on all hours of night. Um, it, it, they, they run the show. I mean, they, they run the city. If you go south enough down past uh, Laurier Avenue, um, the city kind of returns to normal. But if you go north of that, um, this is very much a city run by the occupiers. And this is territory members of parliament and senators have to go through every morning to get to work obviously, with a heavy, a heavy police presence around them. I was seeing some of your activity on Twitter yesterday, too, and you, we're talking about the downtown core here, uh, but you had occasion to actually visit, uh, I, I guess, what you call satellite sites, uh, just on the outskirts of town. I mean, they're, 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 it's not just the downtown core that they're occupying. They're, they're, I mean, while they say they're there for the long haul, it sure looks that way, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they've, they've been given um, or have taken over, I think, in some cases, um, commercial area or farmer's lands, you know, in, in communities surrounding the city central. I, I think more often than not, it's farmers who have said, come park in this big parking lot. I have a back. Come park on this field. Come stay in my place. And these properties are sort of scattered throughout uh, the greater Ottawa region and are serving as staging points. People are sleeping there. People are getting food there. 
Um, I think showering probably occasionally. Um, you know, these people are um, kind of setting up shop in these places and enabling the long haul. You know, downtown is sort of bustling and, uh, and, and, and a bit nuts sometimes. It's hard to get around. It's hard to drive in. It's hard to move your truck. It's hard to really do anything. So a lot of these people are, are, are you know, going off to these satellite locations uh, overnight and then coming back downtown during the day. It is enabling this occupation long term. And I think more critically, worryingly for, the, for any police operation uh, is that these satellite sites are going to continue supporting and feeding into the downtown occupation and making it virtually impossible for police to sort of um, move in and arrest them because not everyone is in the same spot. And to that point, if, if there is going to be any sort of a strategy now with OPP and the, and, and the RCMP, I don't, they can't even accurately account for how many people are there, I guess, since they're in so many different places. I mean, Windsor was different. Yeah, okay, they're all over there by the bridge. You can do a head count and you can marshal them out of there. It took a couple of days to do, but they, for all intents and purposes, were successful in doing that. How do you even approach a problem like this in Ottawa? I mean, it's, it's functionally impossible. You know, the Windsor crossing is very simple. 50 some odd people, I think sometimes it was a little over 100, uh, largely standing in, in the street, uh, some of them in their trucks. You move in and you make arrests. That's very easy. There was no off-site location. There was no you know, greater uh, supply depot nearby. You move in, you arrest everybody, and that's what they did. Or, or you know, give people a chance to leave. That's what happened. Coots, the Alberta border crossing, a little more complicated. You had uh, more people. And as we learned recently, you had a weapons cache hidden nearby, mm-hmm. and some folks who both, uh, allegedly, both knew and wanted, uh, knew how to use them and wanted to use them on members of the RCMP and uh, some civilians. There are now four people charged with conspiracy to commit murder. That was an incredibly difficult situation that was really only brought to an end thanks to a very targeted uh, intervention by the RCMP. But again, you're talking about 100 people. If 14 some odd people were arrested, when you're talking about Ottawa, you're talking about thousands of people, depending on the day, thousands of people. Some of those people, maybe half, I'm going to guess half, are in the downtown core, but spread out for blocks and blocks and blocks. I would suggest the other half are in these offsite locations, either homes or parked in a field somewhere or at a hotel nearby. If you move in to start arresting that half in the downtown core, it's going to require every single officer, every single vehicle at your disposal. When you do that, you are, stre- you are stretching yourself incredibly thin. You will not have the resources to go and make arrests at those offsite locations. You will not have the resources uh, to secure the entire downtown core. So what happens when the other half show up to bring in the cavalry? What happens when the truckers blockade the officers into the downtown core? Because they can do it. They definitely have the personnel. These people have a number of the police by orders of magnitude. And that's one thing. If you're a big protest of just people with, I don't know, you know bottles or, or rocks or whatever, it's quite another thing. When those protesters have trucks and potentially firearms, these people have made it clear they're going to blockade themselves in their trucks, making it incredibly hard to get them out. There are children here, right? You can't fire tear gas into this. You can't, you can't go in and just start tasing people. There is no good option available here. And if anyone suggests there is, I, I would suggest they're dangerously misinformed. Well, and to your point, I know that, you know, I, well, I get tweets and emails about this stuff all the time, you know, that we're candy coated, yada, yada. Apparently I'm being paid by Justin Trudeau to talk like this, I guess. I haven't seen the checks yet, but okay. They were asked the other day about that. I mean, we saw what happened with the cash of arms in, in Alberta. Uh, and at the, so the media conference that was set up in Ottawa a couple of days ago by the, some of the self-appointed uh, organizers, I guess, of this, this protest, they were asked, are, are, are there firearms there? And they basically just said, well, that's all for today. And they left. Uh, they didn't answer the question. So I don't know if they do. I don't know if they are. I mean, you don't know what's in those trucks. So h- how do you plan a strategy? Because there was no strategy before, uh, you know, when, when these guys started rolling in. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, it's not like they didn't know they were coming. You know, they, they said, we're going to Ottawa and this is what we're doing. And you saw the chatter that they wanted to overthrow the government and all of this other stuff. So there didn't seem to be a plan. They just seemed to open the doors and say, yeah, come on in. And, uh, you know, even in Toronto and other places where there were protests, they channeled them over to certain areas so they could control the protest. They did their thing for a few hours and then they went home. 
it seemed that the Ottawa strategy, well, we've heard from a couple of sources inside the police service yesterday, Justin, that slowly strategy was just let them do what they want and they'll get tired and they'll go home. Really? That's the strategy? Oh, yeah. So so for starters, the Ottawa Police Service made a, a critical miscalculation, right? Um, the Ottawa Police Service, I think, very clearly thought these people would stay for a weekend, maybe a week. The Ottawa Police Service thought this would sort of wrap itself up. They weren't listening to what these organizers were saying. They weren't listening to what I was reporting, which is what the or, you know, which what they were saying, which is yeah. we're going to come to Ottawa and we're not going to leave until we're, we win, right? And turns out that they were earnest about that. They had the wherewithal, the money, clearly, and the, the personnel to, to make that happen. So that fatal miscalculation has led to everything else. That has led to these people entrenching themselves. That has led to these people creating this little mini village in downtown and, and really putting roots down. But really, once you made that miscalculation, the results were baked in. You know, Peter Slowly's approach has been, let's not cause conflict. Let's de-escalate everywhere. And that strategy is, quite honestly, I think the best you can do. I think there is a lot of criticism around the margins about enforcement, more ticketing, um, you know, more uh, intelligence, so on and so forth. That's all well and good. But as an overarching strategy, you know, Peter Soli, according to the CBC, basically said, we don't want another January 6th. And frankly, I think he's right. I think anything else, if there's anyone else who replaces him who thinks that they can, they can enact a muscular approach here and end this, they are deluding themselves. Then we've got the other story about uh, Mayor Jim Watson uh, cutting a deal uh, with some of the uh, the organizers, I guess, to get some of the trucks out of some of the residential neighborhoods. That was Sunday that that was announced, and we found out yesterday that apparently uh, a former uh, Doug Ford uh, chief of staff, uh, Dean French, was apparently the guy that was brokering this deal. He was the intermediary. I don't know what he's doing up there. He's apparently, we're told, that he approached uh, the mayor's office and said he had some connections with the protesters. I don't know if that means he's part of the group, if he supports them. I don't know what's going on. But did you see any evidence at all up there that that, that was a successful deal that that they have moved over and 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 and, and have vacated some of those uh, those residential areas? I guess it it mean it depends on what you mean by success. Did I see trucks moving? Yes, I saw them moving from one spot of downtown onto Wellington Street, further entrenching the occupation. I've seen a couple of lanes of traffic open, but if you're still driving in this part of the city, you are. Uh, a braver person than I am, because it's absolutely chaos. Jim Watson's the you know, backroom deal netted nothing particularly good for the city, and yet it 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 it, it enabled and encouraged them. They know. I mean, it, it has led to some more anti-government divisions, you know, of the occupation, um, sort of rejecting the capitulation of the leadership. But overall, this has been a coup. I mean, they're now they're now dictating policy to the city. These people are now at the negotiating table, which is exactly what we didn't want to give them. Because these people are a tiny minority of the country who are, um, you know, using siege tactics to dictate how our government should run. This isn't how it's supposed to work. You know, what's more? I mean, that's not, Jim Watson's uh, really bizarre sort of placation of these people boggles my mind. And the involvement of Dean French makes it just even kookier. But let's talk about the conservative members of parliament who are cheering this on. You literally have members of parliament who are saying, yeah. Go truckers! You know who haven't who had you know, the the interim leader Candace Bergen told these people in the middle of the occupation after four or five days of the occupation, saying, "Keep it going, keep up the good work. You're you're making an impact." You know we have uh, Kathy Wagenthal, a, a Manitoba MP, sharing this information video, saying that you know this is a fun-loving, freedom-achieving, uh, uh, you know, uh, fight against tyranny. You know, we have uh, MP Bob Zimmer retweeting people who are saying that the only way for this to end is if the government resigns. This is, we, these lunatics are running the asylum at this point. I can't believe, actually, I can't believe it. We've been asking for this for ages. We, we have seen politicians in this country, uh, you know, play host disinformation, entertain conspiracy theories, uh, cheer on people who uh, hold deeply anti-scientific views, and this is the end result. This is what we got. We got what we deserve. Well, and as you say, when, when you decide to negotiate with these people, what you do is you legitimize them in their minds anyway. Uh, so they got that. There's victory one. Uh, as you've been reporting. Victory two is the chief of police is gone now. Uh, these guys are thinking, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion here this morning, they're running the show. I mean, you know, they, they've got the hammer right now. So how do you make any progress at all here? I mean, they, the question everybody asking is now, and even you know, Mendocino mentioned this yesterday, it's going to be very difficult to move these people out. 
Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it, yeah. It, 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 it seems as if conflict is going to be almost inevitable here. Now, that's a pretty frightening thought. I, I think the government's approach, listen, I, I still am trying to wrap my head around whether or not the Emergencies Act is a adequate use of federal power here. But at the very least, the federal strategy of uh, raising the temperature, making it financially impossible for these people to stay, I think is the right one. Start, you know, start suspending insurance, start seizing vehicles, start levying heavy fines, start freezing bank accounts. That's the way to do it. These people are committing a crime. They don't, they don't have, they should not enjoy the full access of, of their property if they're using it to blockade the capital city and and cost the country hundreds of millions of dollars. I think that should go without saying. Anyone who says that uh, you know we, we, we can't start going after their money is, I, I think, just looking to appease them. Um, so I, I think that's a good strategy, and it's one that will not, hopefully, lead to any violence. Right? It will it'll be one that will make them want to go home of their own accord, want them to avoid further pain and all this, um, and hopefully disrupt their fundraising channels. So I think that is is generally a good strategy. But I think more importantly... We've just got to make it clear to these people. They are, you know, they are not the majority here. They are a small fringe minority, as the prime minister said. While I think the prime minister has uh, definitely contributed to the problem by demonizing them, by belittling them, I think we do have to make it clear to these people that the vast majority of the country is vaccinated, wants to be vaccinated, is happy they're vaccinated, you know, wants everyone to be vaccinated because it's going to keep everyone safe. And that while these people are free to hold whatever view they like, they're not necessarily free to impose it on the rest of us and disrupt the country because they don't like the policies that we have democratically chosen to manage this crisis. I think there has to be, you know, a de-escalation. There does have to be a lowering of the temperature, as the conservatives have said. But that also has to be done in a way that rejects these anti-scientific views, these conspiracy theories, in a way that does de-escalate but also doesn't you know, let these people take away a victory for this deeply conspiratorial and anti-government point of view. Exactly. Uh, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. We'll be watching for your reporting on this and, of course, uh, your action on Twitter, too, if people want to get some uh, updates on what's going. As always, Justin, uh, thanks so much for this. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Justin Ling, of course, freelance investigative journalist up in Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some changes yesterday with the travel restraints. You may remember a couple of days ago here on the program, we talked with the uh, folks from the airport and airline industry that said, look, uh, there's too many restrictions on here. Uh, It's overkill. They're not necessary. And they've sent uh, letters to the minister involved in this. And it took them a couple of days to respond, but they did respond. And uh, the the minister in charge, uh, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, uh, says now that vaccinated travelers will no longer need a molecular COVID-19 test to enter Canada. That's starting February 28th uh, because the COVID-19 situation in Canada has improved. Now, he says this is great news because we're all looking forward to living with fewer restrictions. But the health minister did caution that our fight against the virus is not over yet. Canada needs to be prepared to face future waves, future variants, which may or may not be smaller than the current Omicron surge, depending on how the, vir- the virus continues to evolve. Today's announcement is obviously very encouraging, but I will repeat it, all measures are subject to constant reevaluation. Uh, and so it goes. Uh, I don't know if it's clarified or it's just made things more confusing for an awful lot of people. Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Jason Profetto. Uh, Dr. Profetto is a family physician and chair of clinical skills and an assistant professor at McMaster University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Happy to be back. Well, it's good to have you here because I wanted to add some, uh, get some clarity to what's going on here because there's a lot of misinformation and, and maybe uh, incorrect, incorrect uh, conclusions that a lot of people are drawing, uh, especially in light of some of the comments I think that the Premier made yesterday when he was in town that, you know, uh, we're done with COVID. <laughs> I don't know that there's a whole lot of medical evidence to suggest that we're done with it. As a matter of fact, I know in the Hamilton area, for instance, Folks like yourself and others are saying, well, listen, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. So are, are these mixed messages going to be confusing or helpful? How do you see this? Yeah, I, I think the messaging is actually quite confusing. The truth is, is that we are not done with COVID and we'll probably never be done with COVID. However, I don't think that precludes our ability to move forward in a lot of different ways of life and society, right? So 
I think the airline changes and the requirement for testing do make a lot of sense. And I actually, I, I, I'm a bit puzzled when, when people sort of, uh, you know, ruminate a little bit over the, the whole, are we done with COVID or not? This is something that is clearly endemic and will be here for a longer time. And I think right now, any, any talk, any discussion about COVID should really be looking at going forward and how are we going to uh, continue society, continue life in such a way that we can live safely and do the things that everyone wants to do in, in a healthy and fun way, right? Well, exactly. And, and uh, you know, to your point, I think you know, we're still all suffering from COVID fatigue. I'm, I'm tired of wearing the mask. I'm tired of all this other stuff. But I think we all are. We get that. But, you know, those things were put in place for a reason. And, you know, the fact that we can even have this discussion now, I'd like to think, Doctor, is because most of us, as a matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of us, we're compliant with all of these restrictions, and that's what got the numbers down to where it's it's manageable now. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, what I view from a lot of my conversations with academics, scholars, fellow fellow doctors, etc., is that I, I think there's two extremes. Like one extreme is individuals that really wish to continue with lockdowns, restrictions, masking indefinitely, even when the science is clearly to the contrary. And then the other extreme is individuals, perhaps, that are totally disinterested in any sort of safety measures going forward and and want to ignore any and all public health measures, right? And I think where I've found most people to be, which I think is appropriate, is is somewhere in the middle, a balanced, reasonable approach. So not dismissing or ignoring the fact that COVID exists, because it does exist, and I've, I've personally seen dozens and dozens of people affected by it, but also not to be too narrow-minded in the fact that we are unable to move forward because we are able to move forward. And I think the vast majority of people I know who in, in my practice, patients, fellow doctors, clinicians, are very, very balanced and reasonable people that will comply, and here's the tricky part, Bill, will comply with, with rules and mandates that make sense and seem logical. And as we continue forward, this is where more of the discussion becomes nuanced in terms of what we can and cannot do as a society. Well, let's talk about the impact that some of these things are going to have. I mean, I, I know people, I'm sure you do, I know you do, the industry, restaurateurs, things of that, and, and they've been hurting so badly. Uh, the fact that at the end of this month, essentially those, those restrictions are going to be lifted is great news for them from a business standpoint. But as I see this, and I'll just very quickly develop a scenario here. Uh, Right now, if I can go to a restaurant, first of all, there are capacity issues. We get that. But I'm wearing a mask. Uh, You know, I take it off when I'm eating. But if I have to go to to the men's room or if I have to go someplace else, I have to put the mask on even if I'm walking around the building. Those are the lies. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to be reminded sometimes, you know, because you get caught up in the moment. But now, as of March 2nd, uh, I can go to a restaurant that's going to be full capacity and I don't know at the next table who's sitting there. I don't know if they've been vaccinated. They're certainly not wearing a mask because they don't need to anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be an awful lot of trepidation. I'm not sure people are going to flock to these places anymore because they're not sure of what they're going to be facing. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to a certain degree. I mean, the reality is right now you can enter a restaurant with a QR code that shows that you're vaccinated with either two shots or three. However... Yeah it does not preclude people from entering a restaurant with COVID. So there are cases, of, we know this, there's people with um, triple vaccinations and they still have COVID and, and they could enter the keg, for example, unbeknownst to the actual seat, uh, the, the greeter at the door. So what, what, when, I, when I look at the restaurant industry, for example, and I've seen a lot of restaurants locally and, and in Southern Ontario and speaking to owners and, and uh, managers, they have been very, very reasonable and cautious with how they do things, making tables appropriately spaced. But at the same time, there's, there's only going to be so much you can do to completely mitigate the risk of an endemic virus within a population that goes to a restaurant. So the truth is right now, it's not impossible to go to a restaurant with COVID. You could do that. You cannot get into a, a restaurant without a QR code. So we know vaccinated people are entering, but it's not that completely asymptomatic people are entering. Going forward with the full capacity proviso and not requiring passports, it will shift things a little bit. But I personally think, professionally and as a doctor, 
there's always going to be some degree of risk when you go into a public setting. And I think now the messaging needs to be a bit more encouraging and positive for people to understand what that risk is like. And the truth is, going to Fortino's, going to Costco, going to crowded stores in a mall, I think those risks have already been existing in society, if I'm honest, Bill. Exactly. And and I guess that's to, to Dr. Moore's point from a couple of days ago when he was on the program. Uh, it's never, the risk is never going to be zero. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to the example I was just using, I mean, you know, the person that's sitting at the next table could have it. Any, they could have the, 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 the flu too, for all I know. I mean, you don't know that. Uh, so I guess common sense is going to have to come into play. But let me ask you about tracking though, because uh, the clip we played just as you were joining us here, doctor, from the health minister, uh, Duclos, uh, and we've heard from Dr. Kieran Moore as well, is that, look, at they're still going to keep an eye on the numbers. And if they see something that's uh, that's troubling and they see some spiking, they may have to do something about that. They didn't necessarily say which restrictions might be reimposed. They don't know how that would be. I guess it would depend on the numbers. But how can we track when we're not doing very much testing anymore? And, and basically, uh, those numbers are going to be hard to come by. I mean, even yesterday, uh, as they were talking about these new restrictions, they said, we actually have no idea how many people actually had COVID because we're not doing a very good job at tracking. Is that concerning? So to me, that's not as concerning, and I'll tell you why. There are the, the vast majority of viruses and bacterial infections, et cetera, we, we actually do not track them nearly, not, not even to a fraction of how we tracked uh, COVID. So issue number one is that it's, it's more common than not to not track these viruses and bacteria when they're endemic because you don't learn as much as you think you do. The bigger problem I would suggest is that Dr. Kieran Moore, public health, generally speaking, I I trust these people quite a bit. And if they were looking at the data independently without sort of any social media misinterpretation or fear mongering or doomsdaying sort of speech, I think it would be very different, but that's not what happened. So in the past, we would see case numbers and before someone that's educated and well-informed in public health could report on it, you would get self-proclaimed data miners that would look at these numbers and then tell you what the scenario was going to be. And more often than not, they would scare people. So these numbers within the hands of public health only are very different than if they're all over Twitter and social media with people misinterpreting them and not understanding the nuanced management of something like endemic or previously pandemic numbers, right? So for me, it's mainly about who is managing and who is speaking about these numbers. When you listen to Dr. Kieran Moore, very balanced, very reasonable, but you go on social media and it's very difficult to know exactly who to trust. Well, and uh, Dr. Moore's reputation precedes him too. As you and I talked about, uh, it seems like 100 years ago now, but in the early days of this, before he became the chief medical officer, of course, so he was the medical officer in the Kingston Frontenac area, and he was uh, very, very conservative in in how he dealt with these. He sh- basically shut everything down. They had one of the lowest rates, of course, in the province, because he said right from the get go, "I'm not going to give this thing a chance to fester." And so he he understands the gravity of the situation, and I think that increases our comfort level uh, to a certain extent when you've got somebody like that who's calling the shots. Let me ask you one other thing, though, because I, the Premier made a couple of comments yesterday, you know, we're done with COVID, and, and that's getting all sorts of headlines, and we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit later on in the program. If somebody came to you right now, though, Doctor, after we finish our conversation and said, look, I, I, I haven't been vaccinated, uh, I, I've got concerns, not an anti-vaxxer, just somebody who had some, whatever the case might be, because there are some people out there that are legitimately nervous about this. Should I still get vaccinated? What would you tell them? Beautiful question, and it's a very it's a very on point thing to discuss because I and I know this is a controversial take, but I think it's extremely important for people to understand this. And I have these conversations every single day. Number one is I would never, in the past, now, and in the future, ever discriminate based on whether or not someone is vaccinated against something. I, that is my position as a professional, and I think that's very important. And number two is, and I, I really wish we had done a better job of this in the province and in the, in, the, in the continent, in the country, is that you have to understand where people come from. So when someone makes a decision about getting vaccinated or not, it's not a binary thing. They are not a zero and a one that you're toggling between. These are human beings with, with a variety of backgrounds, experiences, and fears. 
You have to understand them. You have to speak to them. And when you speak to a population, those, those minute and granular details get lost. So what I would specifically say to someone, as I always say to people, is that this is what the current recommendation is. The current recommendation is for you to become vaccinated, to get vaccinated against COVID. Um, here are the benefits. Here are the risks. The decision is ultimately yours, which I strongly believe it is. And can I help you with this conversation? Do you have questions? Do you have concerns? Are there things that I can answer? You, you let the individual retain the autonomy with a strong supportive message. And I, and Bill, I, I mean, I don't mean to come so strong on this point, but I think it's important. In my practice, the message ends up dictating a lot of what happens. And as a result, people retain their autonomy. They end up for the vast majority making very wise decisions, and then they can go forward in a healthy and safe way. And, and you're not going on too strong at all. I, I, I think people appreciate that clarity, doctor. And uh, that's the difference I find oftentimes when talking to medical professionals such as yourself and, and elected officials who oftentimes tend to to, to want to kind of blunt the message because they don't want to take a lot of heat for it. But that's something, that's hither nor yon, I suppose, in this situation. I think people need to understand that, uh, which I guess dovetails into another question I wanted to ask you about. And I'm going back to, I think, a conversation you and I had two and a half years ago when this started. Uh, the word, the phrase that was bandied about was was herd mentality and, and herd, uh, you know, impact on this with the vaccine. Once again, uh, herd immunity, it would, it would of course, uh, you know, would dwarf into where, well, everybody's, vaccinated and 90% I think is a pretty good number here in Ontario. We're doing pretty well in that regard. So is, is it a fair statement to say, well, if you're not vaccinated, don't worry about it. Don't bother with it anymore. Uh, because of the, this quote, you know, herd mentality and the herd immunity that, that hopefully we've developed. Cause I haven't heard too many medical professionals even use that phrase anymore. Is that off the table? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a couple of things. The first thing is Anytime we have a new virus or a new infection and we want to vaccinate or if people get infected and develop antibodies, you always hope there's going to be a strong herd immunity response in such a way that the majority, especially the vulnerable, are protected in the near and far future. I would say, though, and, and you know, I, I wish people understood this a bit better is that it's difficult to predict exactly what will happen. You may achieve herd immunity faster or slower. You may achieve it. You may not achieve it. So herd immunity is always something that relates to the viruses and these different infections, and both with naturally acquired immunity. So if someone contracts the virus, they will develop antibodies, or with vaccine-related Im immunity. So what I would say now, though, is that we have, and we have been talking about this more, and this is an important point that was blunted by a lot of people uh, in, on social media, is that if someone had the infection and they have natural immunity, there is a protective effect for them and people around them. Vaccines have definitely been able to achieve that as well, albeit not perfect, mostly successful. So... At this point, if someone has two vaccines and then they got Omicron or COVID and, and they developed an infection after two vaccines, their level of immunity is going to be different than we had once thought. If someone has three vaccines, their level of immunity is going to be at a certain level as well. If someone at this point does not wish to get the vaccine, that should be a decision that is based on all the available evidence with good risk and benefit analysis. But in the end, I, I still think it's always an option for people to do even now and even after uh, infection. I would just encourage us as a society to continue to have these conversations, to weigh the risk, the honest risks and benefits, and to allow people to retain their autonomy and decision-making ability. Absolutely. And, and maybe just to finish our conversation on a positive note, uh, as you say, the herd immunity is something that, that we could still be striving for. The vaccination rate, I think, is encouraging. And uh, the news we got from the, the medical officer uh, earlier this morning uh, is there are zero confirmed cases of influenza this year, uh, which I guess is mm -hmm. the second year in a row this has essentially happened. And that's, I would think, because we're being a lot more diligent about our health care, whether it's vaccinations or doing the sorts of things to be preventative right now. I think this has been a bit of a wake-up call 
which is maybe an understatement, but I think, you know, it's something that a mindset that we need to carry forward. Yeah. You know, I, I would just to comment on a couple of things there. Um, the other thing with herd immunity is that if you have a, a constantly seasonal mutating virus, like influenza A, B, or one of the subvariants, it's actually very difficult to ever achieve a herd immunity. You will get, sure. you know, variable degrees of immunity within a population, but long-term it's very difficult. And we're probably seeing the same thing with COVID. In fact, I'm, I'm quite confident that we are. Um, and then the other thing too, which I think we're not doing a very good job of that I, I would like the, the, the population to hear, is that while vaccines and public health measures are incredibly important, it's also equally important to make sure that people are leading healthy, balanced lifestyles, nutrition, exercise, especially for the elderly and frail uh, and, and, the, and the older uh, retirement home and uh, long-term care facility populations, socialization, recreation. We should not be recurrently locking down these very vulnerable populations and, and taking away what otherwise would be a normal life for them. Balance and reason has to go forward. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Jason Profetto, a family physician and uh, the chair of clinical skills and assistant prophet at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The premier was in Hamilton yesterday to make this announcement uh, with ArcelorMittal to FASCO, and that, we'll give you the details on that. But of course, during the Q&A with the media, invariably, most of the questioning was not about the announcement about uh, the financing for the steel, but it was about COVID and the loosening of some of the restrictions and, and some of the comments that the premier made about things like vaccination and mask wearing, uh, which were, well, shall we say, of a much different tone than he has been for the last little while. Here's uh, some of what the premier had to say. Everyone's done with us. Like, we are done with it. Let's let's start moving on and cautiously. And, you know, we, we've, we've followed the rules, all of us, like 90% of us, for, for over two years. The world's done with it. So let's just move forward. Joining us to, uh, to try to analyze exactly what the premier was saying and the tone which i think is awfully important uh from elected officials is uh peggy nash peggy of course is the former ndp finance critic she's author of a uh, upcoming book by the way called women winning office an activist's guide to getting elected that's going to be available in a, in a couple of months and we'll certainly talk about that when it's available to the public uh peggy good to have you back on the program hope you're doing well these days yes i am thankfully and very happy to be here well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the comments from the premier, and not just yesterday in Hamilton, but I mean over the last couple of days. As I mentioned to a couple of my colleagues as I was watching that, I said, "You can sure tell there's an election coming around the corner." Uh, <laughs> there's a, a more conciliatory uh, conciliatory tone, I think, for the premier's comments. But what he was saying, I, I think, a lot of folks are, are pushing back on and saying, "Wait a second, you, you, he seems to be saying, you know, that, that this is done. We're we're done with COVID." Uh, the numbers don't really indicate that yet. Is is this another example of this uh, this wrong messaging that we're getting from our elected officials right now that are only confusing people? Well, you know, I think there is certainly a mood that people are so over this pandemic, right? People want their lives back to normal. But, you know, we want winter to be over and uh, wanting doesn't make it so. I think that... Um, we've we've been to this dance before, where uh, officials want to be the bearer of good bears of good news. They rush to lift restrictions, and then sadly have to pull back when the numbers increase. So it it is a balancing act. This is a government that is going to be facing the electorate in a very short period of time. And uh, they would rather be delivering good news that people welcome than the opposite. And I guess what they are looking at is some of the numbers are coming down in terms of, of the incidence of illness and hospitalization. Really, hospitalization is the only way we can measure because, the, of course, testing uh, has, has been abandoned. Contact tracing has been abandoned. Um, so they're looking at hospitalizations, which have been coming down because of the stringent measures that have been applied around masking, around vaccinations. And to be fair, most people have been vaccinated. Uh, we wish there were higher numbers on the booster, but still most people have complied. 
So um, what this will mean, we don't know. I mean, we still have at least another month of winter. Um, and uh, as people go back to work, uh, or, or some people have never stopped being face-to-face uh, -face with people at work, will that mean the numbers will rise? Um, we may see that. It's, it's, a bit, it's always a bit of a gamble when governments do this, but I, I think the government wants to be delivering good news, and uh, I think that's what Premier Ford is doing. Well, it's sure, and you know, and I, I get that, and I think everybody gets that, and and you want to put a positive spin on everything. I'm, you know, we we know that in the in the dark days of this pandemic, when the numbers were really bad, and and there were some pretty serious restrictions. I mean, his popularity numbers plummeted. We, that's that's happening, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. I can understand that totally too. Let's face it, when you're you know in the corner office of Queens Park, there, you, you, they answer to you. I mean, that's that's it. But we've always been concerned about about politicians interpreting medical advice in situations like this. I mean, you know, when you hire a science table, uh, such as Dr. Uni and his uh, his colleagues, and you have a chief medical officer, I, I, I'm still flummoxed to understand why is the premier delivering that message? It's it's medical advice. It's not political advice. Uh, but they always mm -hmm. want to be out in front on something like this. And because, But because of that, though, Peggy, words matter and what you say matters. And and I got the sense from some of the comments that uh, the premier made yesterday about things like like vaccinations uh, that he's basically saying, look, it doesn't matter uh, whether or not you get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Well, I, I, yeah, I think it does. And I'm not going to pressure somebody. I still think we should. I, I'd like to see 100 percent vaccination. Ninety percent is great. But, you know, I, I, I think he was basically trying to impart this message that the worst is over. Everything's going to be fine. As a matter of fact, it should be perfect just around uh, the first week of June when there's an election. What a coincidence <laughs> that's going to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a very dangerous message for people to hear that we've turned the corner and this pandemic is pretty much over. I think that's a dangerous message. I don't know about you, but I'm <laughs> I'm wearing my mask if I go on the if I go on sure. transit or if I'm inside with other people. Um, I I feel so badly for gym owners, restaurant owners, but I, I personally am not ready to embark on that yet. Maybe maybe at some point soon, but I I think that we still want to encourage people to get vaccinated who haven't been vaccinated <clears throat> excuse me to to get the booster if they haven't had the booster why because yes while you can get covid even if you're vaccinated you are much less likely to get it and if you get it it will be less severe those are facts i mean scientists around the world agree with that so to send a message that somehow implies Nah, maybe it's not quite as important to be vaccinated and and maybe soon we don't need to wear masks, uh, especially in the cooler months when people are inside, I think could be, you know, I understand he wants to send a hopeful message, but I'm concerned it could be the wrong message. Well, history tells us that, doesn't it, Peggy? I mean, how many times have we gone through this now in different waves where we said, hey, the numbers are down. Okay, guys, back to the restaurants, uh, back to the gyms, go to the hockey games, go to, and then, you know, four or five weeks later, all of a sudden we got to pull back and shit. It's, you know, I don't want to do that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'd like to not to have to wear a mask anymore. Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, we can lift all the restrictions, but I don't want to see them reimposed. And this has happened before. I, I don't know that there's a strong indication that this is going to be any different than others. I mean, I, I would rather be cautious than carefree and then all of a sudden have to, you know, be a, under the weight of, of having to sh shut down restaurants or reduce capacity once again. Uh, I don't know how small business owners can take this, this kind of yo-yo approach to this. And, you know, the numbers will indicate this. And, and I'm a little bit nervous right now that a lot of people are just going to throw the masks away or everything else away. I know the mask is still going to be in place for a while, but it, they, they say it's going to be voluntary. Uh, for establishments to impose masks, uh, uh, you know, mask mandate. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, I, and and where is that going to lead us? I think that's the question we should all be asking ourselves right now is, are we going to be in a better place or a worse place uh, a month from now? Well, you know, I don't know why the government would leave it up to the private sector to enforce health regulations. If the government believes that we should still be wearing masks, it should say so and enforce that. Um, I, I guess, you know, 
I know the government has an eye on the upcoming election. I wonder why they wouldn't have waited another month to make this kind of announcement so that we're through the worst of winter. Um, I wonder whether the protests have had an impact on that. He mentioned his own family, whether his own family members have had an impact on his decision making. I mean, we're only human. Uh, he's got to have his rationales. But it it seems um, granted he wants to give hopeful news. I, I think more uh, reasonable news would be to say, listen, if we get to a point where we have uh, X number of hospitalizations or X number of people in ICU, uh, then, you know, maybe a week after that, then we'll start to ease restrictions. But we've seen no benchmarks from any level of government to tell us what progress looks like, how we know when we should be moderating restrictions. You mentioned how we've done this dance back and forth with easing and then tightening restrictions. We've seen it in the UK. I remember when they lifted all restrictions and said, mm -hmm. basically, we're done. We're back to normal. Uh, I was just talking with um, someone over in the UK who said it, it's terrible that so many people are missing work now because of the, the incidence of, of illness because of COVID. We've seen that in, in places around Canada. And uh, I guess it's, it's that that's very fatiguing. If we're in uh, special measures to deal with the pandemic, as difficult as it is, provide support for businesses and individuals who need it, Let's all get through this together, but let's get through it safely. I think that would be a more responsible message. I, I think one of the more telling comments uh, the Premier made yesterday during the, the scrum uh, when asked about this uh, was he reiterated the fact, he says, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, I was never really big on this proof of vaccination thing. Uh, and I know he wasn't, I know he wasn't because he, he, you know, they had to drag him kicking and screaming into the policy when other jurisdictions had already adopted it. Uh, it's it's basically I, I, you you just asked whether or not the protests are having anything to do with it. That, that sounded very much to me like he was trying to placate those folks and said, "Hey, I'm 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 with you guys." I didn't think it was a good idea either, uh, but you know the the medical officers made me do this. And instead of saying uh, possibly that you know what it's because of those mandates that we're in the position we are in right now, uh, because of that proof of vaccination that we're able to keep the numbers down to a manageable number right now. Uh, instead of simply saying, look, you know, I want everybody to like me going into the election right now, even the people that are anti-vaxxers and, and anti-this. I mean, if, what's that old phrase that you and I have talked about before? If you stand, for, don't stand for anything, you stand for nothing. Uh, you know, take yeah. a stand on that. I get that. But it's your policy, Mr. Premier. Own it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's he's doing a bit of a dance because he's brought in emergency measures. In fact, these have helped clear the blockage on the Ambassador Bridge. And, and his, of course, priority has been business and getting business, uh, getting the supply chain moving again so that uh, we're open for business, uh, to, to quote the, the provincial government. And, uh, but at the same time, can he afford to lose not only the people who've been uh, protesting, but those quiet supporters of, of those people, uh, they're not in the majority, but there are a number of them. And does he want to keep them or, or win them as, as voters going into the next election? I guess no politician wants to alienate people when they might want to call on them for support in a few months time. I, I wonder if that also has an impact on him. Well, of course it does. I, you know, I'm sure that you know he's looking at all of this stuff, and I know it, it was uh, frustrating to more than a few people. That uh, and I, I kudos to the work they did in Windsor to finally clean that up and get that that bridge open again. That's fine, uh, and that was a, a coordinated uh, process to get that done. Uh, he's not paid much attention to Ottawa, though. And last time I checked, Ottawa is still part of the province of Ontario, but he's pretty much <laughs> tossed that back at the federal government and said, "Well, that's where Parliament is, so that's their responsibility." Well, not really. Uh, you know, there's there's still a role here, I think, for the provincial government to play here. And uh, it'd be interesting to see just how he's going to try to to work this out, too. Uh, that's, I guess, one of the other uh, rules of politics, isn't it? I mean, if you can deflect things, Peggy, to, some of, to the other guy, that, you know, makes you feel a lot better about, uh, you know, the people that are jumping up and down with placards. If you say it's his fault, not mine. 
So it, it, that's got to be played out, I guess. But it's a, a very confusing situation, I think, for an awful lot of people when when you get this kind of mixed messages from from well, the premier of a province. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to feel for the people in Ottawa who have been putting up with that uh, with that situation with that. Uh, occupation of the downtown core. There are people who have to walk past there every day and people who can't walk past it because they feel threatened. And uh, I think it's the hot potato that nobody has wanted to deal with. And it's it's cost uh, uh, a couple of people their jobs already. We'll see how it all plays out. But I, I think the, the premier is uh, basically by his, his silence, um, indicating he thinks that's up to the feds to deal with. And now the prime minister has said he, he will deal with it through emergency legislation. But I think for the average person, he's basically saying, you know, it's up to you to take precautions. And I don't feel that while we do have personal responsibility, I don't feel that uh, this is the correct approach. I think we need leadership when we're in a difficult situation, the global pandemic is not over as much as we wish it were. Winter's still here, the pandemic is still here, and I think we need our government to show leadership, not just say what he thinks people want to hear. Well, and the Premier's comments about family, I can fully understand. I mean, here we are suggesting he's going to try to control the message. <laughs> in the Ford household, he's got a daughter, as you well know. Uh, that was very active on Twitter as an anti-vaxxer and made some uh, some rather strong comments about that. And apparently this week she's come out in favor of the uh, the protesters in Ottawa too. So I guess he's got his own problems <laughs> to deal with under his own roof. Peggy, always well, a pleasure. You know, thanks so much. Go ahead. Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. Peggy Nash, of course, a former finance critic uh, and author of uh, an upcoming book uh, called Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. That should be an interesting read. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.